Pastor Ed Clicker will be preaching um, oh. while John is out. So, Ed, please come lead us in the Word of God. Don't go anywhere yet, Adam. Is my microphone working? It is. All right. Now you can go. Good morning. Okay, I'm looking to see everybody who's here. All right, now I'm taking my glasses off. I have um, hearing aids, the arms of glasses, these weird things that hook onto the microphone. Something got to go. Last week, Pastor John, I'm trying to do one of his quick synopsis that he always does, you know, before the sermon as he, you know, hits the highlights of last week. But last week, John preached um, from 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. And at that time, we noted that Peter was writing to the Jews who were living in a whole bunch of Greek provinces, and I'm not going to list them all, you know, Bithynia and you know, a bunch. And he was telling them that the, the time was past for living like the Gentiles lived, that the Greeks were noticing that their Jewish neighbors no longer participated in that what the Greeks considered normal lifestyle. And John's takeaways were that by putting off human passions, no longer living a self-indulgent life, and putting on the passion of the will of God, passions for the will of God, which would be a life of prayer and hospitality as, as modeled by Jesus, that we, like the Jews of the dispersion, can live an honorable life and find our spiritual gifts by serving others. That was last week. It was a good sermon. Get ready. The title of today's sermon is Surprise. Now, I think it would probably be fair to say that, well, let me, I'll just ask a question. We'll see a raise, uh, show of hands here. How many people think of the word surprise and it makes them feel good? Okay. How many hear the word surprise, and it makes them feel bad. How many would rather not commit at this time because they don't know what the surprise is? Okay. That's kind of what I expected. I would think that most anybody who's under the age of 15 probably said, yeah, surprise. Okay. Anybody over the age of 60, different thought process. Well, today we're going to conclude chapter 4 in 1 Peter, looking at verses 12 through 19. So let me uh, read that and then we'll, we'll jump in. Beloved, be not, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Beloved, I'm just going to go through this one verse at a time. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. No, wait a minute, hold on a second. Before I actually get into this, I've got to take a, a little aside here. We live in the United States, in the Western world, in a very materialistic society. And all you got to do is look online, turn on your TV, and it's not very difficult to find somebody preaching the health and welfare gospel. And the idea of healthy and wealthy and wise is from the prophet Benjamin Franklin. What we know, <laughs> he's not a prophet. He wasn't inspired. But there are so many instances of these preachers of sorts preaching that God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be well. God wants to bless you in everything. And we live in a broken and fallen world. And those people totally deny the pain. They, they mock suffering that goes on in this world and goes on with Christians all around the world. So I just want to lay it out there. First of all, God never says that you're not going to have difficulties. God never says that he wants you to be wealthy. Wouldn't it be nice if we all were? But that isn't what's in, that's not the plan. So I just want to leave that kind of at the door, get that out of the way. When we're talking about suffering, that, that whole idea that God wants to bless everybody and make them all wealthy, he doesn't want to bless you. And he does bless us, but often the blessing comes in suffering. All right, let's get back there to where I'm supposed to be. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The fiery trial, those words in the NIV are translated the fiery ordeal. A trial is, some play, is, is a, a, a thing that goes on to try to prove the truth of something. You think about a, a court trial, it's trying to find out the truth. Uh, an ordeal, on the other hand, is, is something that we think of as being something we have to endure. But whether the meaning of these words indicates a, a, a test of true faith or whether it's a, a, a sincere endurance, either way, a fiery trial or a fiery deal, ordeal make reference to the fire and the testing of a fire, much as we read in, in Malachi. In, in Malachi 3, um, we read about refining and puring, purifying, strengthening metals. The word reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, 
will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Leri, refine them as gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Be not surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening. But you see, when Peter writes this to these folks, something strange was going to happen. Something unexpected was coming upon these Jewish Christians. If we take a look at the background of these people and who he was writing to in these provinces, and Peter himself, think about Peter. Peter was born in Judea. Peter was a Jew. I mean, Jesus had renamed him. He had given him the name Peter, the rock, but his name was Simon. Simon Peter is often, he's often referred to in that manner. And growing up as a Jew in Israel at that time, in Judea, he understood what it was to live in an occupied land. Judea in those days was occupied by the Romans. So Peter, he was familiar both as being a Jew and also with being a Jew that has seen and witnessed persecution. But the recipients of this epistle, the folks that got this letter when it was circulated through Asia Minor there, while they were Jews, they had not experienced persecution. For they had lived <laughs> like the folks in the neighborhood. They had lived very much in the same manner as the, the, the Greeks in these Roman provinces. And it's only recently since they've heard the word that they actually have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Prior to that, they'd never, occur, they'd never incurred any kind of hostility towards their religion because probably didn't really practice it. They pretty much lived like everybody else, which meant they went to the parties with everyone else. And, you know, they hung out with everyone else and sinned like everyone else. I think the first thing we need to take away from this is that from what Peter is saying here, don't be surprised when the trial comes. You should be expecting some degree of persecution. But in verse 13 we read, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, he was reviled. He suffered. He suffered at the hands of his own people, let alone the Romans. And his believers, those who follow him, will also suffer and ultimately be glorified with Jesus. Jesus was very clear 
when he spoke with his disciples that he and the Father were one. You who have seen, he who has seen the Son has seen the Father. So to think that the Messiah's suffering was independent of God's sovereignty, it just doesn't wash. This was in God's plan, as we all know. And the disciples, as, as was read earlier today, when they asked Jesus about his coming and the end of the age, Jesus foretold them that there was impending suffering, death, he would die, and that he would be resurrected. Disciples wanted to know what to expect. And Jesus told them that they could expect to be hated. They could expect to, find, to face all kinds of tribulation and finally to be executed. Now think about this, okay? They've been hanging out with Jesus better part of three years now. They know him very well. They're following him. They're learning from him. Spending time. He was the boss. So let's say you decide that uh, you want to approach your boss. So you can stop in the office or you can email and you say, you know, what are the long-term prospects for my career? And your boss says, well, you know, when we look at the, the long-range term long -range plan here, um, well, you're going to be hated. You're gonna, you're gonna, people are going to beat up on you, something fierce. A lot of tribulation and suffering. And sometime before you get a chance to retire, you're going to be retired. You'll be, ex you'll be executed. That's not what we expect when we talk to our boss about what the long-range plan is. Now, my boss, other than Karen, I have no boss anymore. Well, the Lord's my boss, I guess. But if you have a boss, it's always a good idea to have an updated resume just in case you get an answer like this. But you see, the disciples, they were signing on for that future. They were signing on for hatred, tribulation, suffering, and with the exception of the Apostle John, they all met with execution. But you know, that hasn't really changed all that much for Christians. If we take a little walk back in history and go back to about the time that, that first Peter was actually written, when Peter was writing it in the early 60s, around 60, 63 AD, something like that, Nero was the emperor. And Kylie, what I was alluding to about the violin, Nero was known for fiddling while Rome burned. Intense persecution was coming upon these people, upon all the believers, beginning the mid-60s, 60 A.D. And we read in some of the ancient texts about these persecutions. It's not just within Scripture. There are historical documents, other, I want to say these aren't historical because they truly are and inspired, but there are other non-inspired historical documents that also mention the persecution of Christians. 
There is a document written by Pliny the Younger, who was a, a governor in one of these uh, Greco-Roman provinces, who was writing to the governor, or the emperor, excuse me, about this group called Christians. He didn't know what to do with them. See, he'd, he'd been persecuting them. He'd been holding their feet to the fire, literally. And he didn't know what to do with them because most of them would not recant their faith. And they were causing some real disturbances. One of the things that, that Pliny mentions in his letter to, to the emperor of Rome at the time was that an instance he gave was there were these two slave women. And these crazy, this crazy sect of, sect of Jews were treating them like they were everybody else. In fact, they had made them deaconesses, leaders. There were Roman citizens among these people who refused to go to the temple and worship Caesar. And he wanted to know, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're totally disturbing society. Everything's in an uproar. It's like anarchy here because of this group. And he referred to them as Christians. That's the first and earliest reference to this new Jewish sect being called Christians. And not too long after that, just two or three years later, in A.D. 115, a, Roman, a guy who was actually writing, the, and we, we think today, you know, in 2023, that we're looking back in history, ancient history. There was a guy who was writing the history of Rome in 115 A.D. It's like, hey, you know, that's just yesterday from our perspective. His name was Tacitus, and, and, and Tacitus, in his history of Rome, was writing about Emperor Nero, who had long since passed. But in his history, he wrote, Therefore, to stop the rumor, that's the rumor that Nero had set Rome on fire, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. And then he goes on to say, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. But that pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out yet again, and not only in Judea. Here's somebody who's a hundred years, well, roughly, let's say 80 years after the resurrection, is writing a history of Rome and including in it the pernicious, how do you put that, pernicious superstition, the resurrection of Christ. It wouldn't go away. And he was ascribing this to this group called Christians. It was a name that was not considered a compliment. When these people referred to this Jewish sect as Christians, it was a very derogatory comment. But we see that persecution of Christians was taking place from the very beginning of the faith. It started with, with the Lord himself. 
we know what's in Scripture, but here we're also seeing records of it taking place outside of the Scriptures. References to the resurrection of Christ outside of the Scriptures. Not saying they believed it, but it's referenced. This persecution has been going on since day one. In fact, not in 67 A.D., not in 112 A.D., not in 115 A.D., but 2022 A.D., last year, 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. One in seven Christians worldwide, one out of every seven, face persecution. One in five believers on the continent of Africa, two in five, two out of every five Christians in the continent of Asia face persecution, and one out of every 15 in Latin America. Now, we're really happy to share in Jesus' suffering <laughs> the part where he suffered and we get to live. But when Peter's talking here about sharing suffering, he's talking about sharing the same fate as our Lord. That we are, as Christians, going to suffer in that manner and share in that. And yet, we're to rejoice as we await his glory being revealed. Christians have always suffered. Christians will suffer. But Christians are to rejoice in the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ and in his eventual glory. 1 Peter 4, verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter was really probably foreseeing what was coming to the people who were reading his letter. See, now they're living lives that are obviously quite different from the guy next door. They're beginning to stand out in the neighborhood, in the towns, in the provinces. And he's telling them, you're going to experience some insults. Insulted, you'll be insulted for the name of Christ. Now, that happens today. It's not uncommon for a believer to be insulted, to be mocked. Even here in the United States, it happens. Of course it does. We're not facing physical persecution, at least not yet. But we are mocked. Christians are always mocked, made fun of, teased, because of a different lifestyle from the expectations of others. Some of you sitting here, 
have experienced this form of rejection from friends, maybe former friends, acquaintances, family members, neighbors, others in the workplace, colleagues, employers. I mean, this could happen anywhere. I mean, are you the one who is unwilling to lie to help someone else get out of a tough, tough spot? Do you refuse to compromise your ethics for the good of the business? Do you refuse to help your friend cheat on the math test or the science test? Are you the kid that spends time with that other kid that nobody else hangs with? For some reason, there's a kid that nobody likes. Are you the one that is going to be teased and insulted because you ate at the same table with them at lunchtime? I mean, there's lots of things. If we live as Jesus commands us to live, that you're going to be ostracized for. And it's already happening. I'm, I'm sure lots of stories sitting in this room right now. You could lose a job. You could lose a promotion. You can be falsely accused of something. We haven't really experienced much, guys. When we look at what brothers and sisters of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have to live with day in and day out, We have no idea. Some of our folks who may be recent arrivals to the United States probably have a much better idea than most of us do. But Paul wrote in Romans, Romans 8, chapter 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we read a little further in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress? Shall persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can we be more than conquerors? God is sovereign. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Christian's life view has to be an eternal view, a view of life with an eternal outs outlook. We can't be situational. If the way you view your life is based upon today's situation... You're going to be in some tough spots. God doesn't love you any less because you're going through a tough time. Let me say that again, because this is something that is, even though we know the truth, sometimes 
It settles in deep parts of our hearts, and we got to get it out of there. God does not love you any less if you're in a tough time, if you have an illness, if you're suffering financially, if you've lost your job, if no one will talk to you. God doesn't love you any less, nor does he love you any more when things are looking great. Situation we live in, we don't have the privilege of knowing God's mind and why things happen as they happen. But it is affirmed over and over and over again in Scripture. God's love is unfailing. He loves us in want, and he loves us in plenty. He loves us in suffering, and he loves us in times of joy. A week or so back, Karen and I were, took about 15 minutes and wandered into Barnes & Noble. It's impossible for the two of us to spend 15 minutes in Barnes & Noble. It, it, absolutely impossible. The best time for us to go to Barnes & Noble is around 9.30, because they close at 10, and it, and it gets us out the door. Otherwise, could, we could be there for hours. But when we were there, they had a, uh, you know how they have the, the, the things they're pushing on the big racks and sit out, you know, everything else is on the shelves, but this is what you're supposed to buy. And it's right here as you walk in the door. And when we went in, walked in the other day, I noticed a, a new one, new displace there, and it was a book called The Watchmaker's Daughter. Well, I didn't have to go any further than just look at the title. I knew who it was about. It was about Corey Ten, Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was a woman who, who lived in the Netherlands, in Holland. And as a young girl, her father was a watchmaker. And when she wasn't more than a teenager, Nazi Germany took over the Netherlands. And Corey, amazingly, she and her family, but she in particular, worked unbelievably hard and saved countless Jewish lives, hiding them and then helping them through the underground to get to freedom. She wrote a book herself called The Hiding Place. Some of you probably have read it. They made a movie out of it in the 60s or 70s. I don't remember. But the interesting thing, what, I, what always stuck in my mind from that book was when she told of the suffering and the blessing that God brought her because the suffering was that where the, what do you want to call it, the cabin, the, the shed, whatever it is, where, where she was put was infested with fleas and lice. That was the suffering. And that was the blessing. Because the Nazi guards didn't want to get anywhere near the fleas and the mice. And due to those fleas and mice, to a very great extent, she survived 
the concentration camp. You see, <laughs> the sufferings that we endure can also bring the blessings of God. And what Corey lived through wasn't... <laughs> that kind of suffering can come again pretty quickly, and it does in parts of the world. I mean, this is not ancient history. Corey Ten Boom died in the 1980s. So we're talking not that long ago. It happened in a, in a first world nation. Germany was at the top of the peak. Didn't take much. So the suffering Christians endure show that we belong to Jesus and we share in his suffering and likewise we will share in his glory. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. This is a really interesting verse, I think. I think Peter is making a point here, and it's not just regarding proper suffering. I mean, suffering for righteousness. What Peter's saying here is, well, first of all, he's got an interesting list of sins. Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. Now, it's not to say that a murderer cannot be saved, because in all, we all know he can, he or she. A murderer, anyone, any sin, if you confess that sin before the Lord and trust in Lord Jesus for salvation, to forgive you and to save you, that sin is forgiven. It doesn't mean you don't have to suffer the consequences of that sin, but no matter what the sin is, we're all sinners here, folks. Okay? But the interesting thing is the declining degrees of sin. I, this one cracked me up. I'm sorry. I read this, and, and, and I, I really had to dig into a commentary, two or three other commentaries, to figure out this meddler thing. It, it really was bugging me. A meddler. I mean, I get the whole deal of oh, evildoer. I think that cover, covers everything, right? But now he, a meddler. So I dug around to see what other people found and, and, and what, the, uh, what the word originally had been. And the connotation is a busybody or someone who sows discord. Now, what Peter's saying here is that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about, folks. You're not, you're not blessed because you're suffering for sins you've committed. If you're suffering for Christ, it's one thing. Suffering because you yeah, were misbehaving is a whole other story. But the question that really bugged me was, was Peter, I mean, we know, we look at the Scriptures and these letters as, you know, this is God's inerrant word. It was written, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,500, you know, the whole timeline-wise, quite some time ago. But, you know, Peter knew these people. He wasn't just writing this book for, you know, thousands thousands of people over the next two or three uh, millennia. Peter, Peter was writing to individuals that he knew. So when I read this, I, 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 I have to really realize that he's writing it to particular people, but God's inspiring it 
Not just for those particular people, but for those of us today who are still reading this. So the question in my mind was, first of all, who were the individuals and why was he telling them this? Was there something going on in one of these places where somebody was sowing discord and, and meddling in other people's affairs? Very likely. <laughs> but then I had to ask, is there an application here for me today? And I'll be honest with you. There have been times in my life that I'm glad I wasn't reading this verse of Scripture and looking in the mirror at the same time. There's no blessing when you suffer for something you've done wrong. There's no blessing when you suffer for a sin you've committed or for a sinful lifestyle you're living in. There is no blessing. There's no blessing if you get sent to the room and you're suffering there because you were fighting with your sister or your brother. So, kids, you're not going to get blessed for fighting. doesn't work that way. So Peter's telling them, he's reminding them, yeah, this, all this suffering is good because, you know, you're suffering for Christ, you're going to be blessed with Jesus. But then he felt it was necessary to plug this one line in here. Don't forget, though, you've got to be suffering for the Lord, not suffering for your sins. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, one understanding of that verse is that Peter was simply instructing his disciples to glorify God in the name of Jesus. For they were suffering as Jesus, the Son of God, had suffered. And as they prayed in his name, they were to suffer in his name. And truthfully, that's what I thought it meant until I started digging around a little. But remembering what we talked about a little, I, we didn't talk about it. You've been very patient listening. What I talked about a few minutes ago about them not calling themselves Christians, really, because there was a term of derision used by the Romans. But since they didn't consider themselves or refer to themselves as Christians, then it, it kind of has a different meaning. If anyone suffers as a Christian, being called a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In other words, they're going to call you a Christian. Don't be ashamed of that name. If we look back in much more recent history to the time right before the American Revolution, the British that occupied the colonies mocked the colonists by calling them Yankees. It was a term of derision. Yet after the revolution had begun and after the Americans no longer viewed themselves as British colonists, that name Yankee became a term of pride. They adopted it probably just as much to mock the British as anything, but it, be it became something that was very acceptable. And what we see happening here 
1,500 years, 1,800 years before that, was that in the same manner, the followers of Jesus soon adopted the name Christian, even though it had initially been a name of insult and derision. And what he's telling them here, at least what I believe he's telling them here, is to glorify God in that name. That name wasn't just a name of derision. It was a name of acknowledging the Messiah, the one who had come to save these people. These were, remember, these, even though they were living like Greeks and Romans, they were Jews. This was their Messiah who they now believed in. And he's telling them, don't be ashamed of being called a Christian. Don't be ashamed of being connected to your Messiah. Christos, the Greek word for Messiah. Even as they were suffering, they were unashamed of the name Christian. And they glorified God in that name. When believers suffer persecution for Christ's sake, we should have no, no shame. But we should glorify God in that name because that name acknowledges God's Son as the Messiah and Savior of the world. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's two what I consider to be equally valid understandings of this passage. The first reference is the Old Testament, where we see God's people described, as, as we saw in Malachi 3 earlier, as, as being the objects of God's judgment. We read, in Psalm, we read in Psalm 66, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net, for you have laid a crushing burden on our back. You've let men ride over our heads. And we went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. In this interpretation, it's God's judgment. God's people will be judged. And by the blood of Jesus, believers will be saved. And then the last tag to it is, but what punishment will the unbelievers experience? What will they suffer? But there's another interpretation And that is that the household of God, I mean God's people, need to prepare for they are going to be judged. But in this instance, it's, they're being judged by the society around them. They're being judged by the Romans and by the Greeks. And through most of this passage, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. In either interpretation... I think can be right here. It could be the Romans judging them. But, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? You see, up until this point, as we're reading through here, in fact, even in the verses before today's uh, text, Peter's being very objective. 
And everything he says to them is in the, in the second person. You this, you that, you will suffer, you will be blessed. You, 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 you. Here he says us. And if it begins with us, Peter is now including himself when he's making reference to the household of God. And I think that's an important distinction. In including himself in the household of God, he is now looking at, he's talking specifically to these folks who live in Asia Minor and, again, all those places in that Greco-Roman world. But he's including himself in it now. He's now talking about believers. It's much more inclusive, the household of God, because now Peter's part of that. And I think that when Peter is asking this question, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's actually asking, what will happen to the members of the household of faith who do not obey the gospel? See, we know that there was pressure on the Christians to recant their faith. We know that. It's still going on. And it seems, again, when we look back to the writings of, uh, of Pliny, that some had been denying their faith and giving up their faith. So it's very logical that Peter would be including himself. And what makes this all the more interesting is when you realize that this is Peter. The phrase, man, I do not know him, comes to mind. This is Peter, who has already got a track record of denying Christ. This is the man who Jesus, after the resurrection, had a real heart-to-heart -heart conversation and restoration after he had denied him three times the night of Christ's trial and the day before he was crucified. And here, Peter is following the command that Jesus gave him when he said to him in that restoration, feed my sheep. And Peter is now feeding Christ's sheep. But Peter understands denial. He understands recanting faith better than anybody else that we have in this book. He understands restoration too, which is wonderful for us because it's very easy for us at times to recant our faith. It's very possible under tough circumstances that you deny your Lord. 
it's not unforgivable if you take it to him and confess it. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, what does it mean to not obey the gospel? Well, it means to not believe. If you don't, if you don't obey the good news, then you're not believing the good news. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, this is verse 18, if the righteous, righteous is ver- scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, the word scarcely, I, again, I, I speak no Greek whatsoever. I mean, I can do grape, that isn't even grape, grape leaves. Pita, is that, is that Greek? Maybe. Pita bread? I don't speak any Greek. Internet's a wonderful thing, though, when you're researching a sermon and you don't know what you're doing. Um, or you don't know any Greek, at least. The Greek word here is molus. Not that that really matters a lot to you, but all these things have, can have a little different nuances one way or the other. And when I think of the word scarcely, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The English word scarcely makes me think of the word barely. You know, something's scarce, it's not much of it. And, and if some, in some uh, translations do use the word barely rather than scarcely. And I mean, back in my teaching days, if a kid came up to me and said, I barely got that report done, or I barely finished the essay, I'd think afterwards, hmm, why is she telling me this? Is this to lower my expectations? Might work. If I barely get to a bus on time, I, mean, I just make it. I mean, I nearly missed it. But this is talking about salvation. If the righteous is scarcely or barely saved, it doesn't fit right. I mean, couldn't, couldn't you see, you know, um, man, you were just saved by the skin of your teeth. Jesus almost lost you. No, that doesn't work. We know that's not true. Peter recognized the believers were, su- were to suffer judgment. And the signs of the persecution, they were on the horizon, and Peter wanted his disciples to be ready for it. So when we look at that word molus that we use as, that's translated as scarcely or barely, we find that when you get more detailed to it, it means saved in or saved out of difficulty. So I think what Peter's actually saying here is if the righteous is, only, is, is saved in suffering or is in saved experiencing difficulties, in other words, they're having a hard time, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter knows some people are going to deny their faith. He's the perfect guy for knowing people are going to deny their faith. You're going to suffer. You're going to be saved, but you're going to be saved with difficulties. You're not going to be living the easy life and sit back and say, salvation is great. Hey, you know, 
This is part of that health and welfare thing. Everybody isn't going to be happy. Everybody isn't going to feel like the world is a wonderful place and God loves them all the time. He does, but that isn't going to be their experience with regards to their situation in life. But he's saying, you're going to be saved. You're going to be saved in difficulties. But what will become of the one who turns his back on the Lord? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner, the one who recants his faith, the one who can't take the suffering? And you see, judgment is going to be difficulty. It's going to be difficult for these folks. Living in that society where they're viewed as people who break the norm, who are anarchists or, or whatever, um, that judgment's going to be hard on them. And he's telling them they're only saved to the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Our confidence is entrusted to Jesus and his work on the cross. And those people, as well as Christians today, if you deny the Messiah, don't repent of it. There's no chance of salvation. And the last verse, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God is sovereign in all, including suffering. We remember, and again, going back to Romans, Romans, again, chapter 8, what a, what a, Romans itself is a tremendous book, but chapter 8 is amazing. Verse 28, Paul tells us that all things work together for good. To them that love God, then they work together for good according to God's purposes. So we have to trust. We trust in a sovereign God who is working all of our situations out for the good, for our good. But it's according to his purposes. This is that, you know, we've got tremendous revelation in God's word but we don't have the mind of God to know what his purposes always are in our lives. But Christians are assured that they are eternally safe so they can do the good works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. Ephesians 2 Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So there's going to be suffering, and there's good works to do. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So whether you preach a sermon, openly witness to your neighbor, refuse to cheat on your math test when the other kids tempt you to, if you take meals to the man across the street that no one else will talk to, if you support the pro-life marchers, or if you help the kid that no one else will speak to in school, if you run openly as a Christian for a political office, or if you quietly spend your free time in prayer for the concerns of the world, or whatever good works the Lord ordains for you, you can still expect to be insulted or ostracized or persecuted or worse in this life in the name of Christ. Don't be surprised. Adam, all's in your court.